Late one night in June of 1969, undercover police officers tried to shut down a gay bar in Manhattan called the Stonewall Inn. But the bar patrons didn't go quietly. All through the night, the streets were flooded with people protesting New York City's anti-homosexual laws. Some witnesses said the riots were somehow both defiant and joyous. And now, 50 years later, the Stonewall Inn is protected as a national monument. An untextbook producer, Jordan Pettiford, wanted to see it firsthand. Around the time that I like personally came out to like my family, I decided that I wanted to look more into like the history of the movement. And so I was on this trip to New York and I actually got to see like the Stonewall Inn. But unfortunately, because I wasn't 21, I couldn't go inside. So the thought that occurred to me then is, okay, what happens after this? Jordan always knew that the history of queer liberation has been a challenging one, but one that's also full of audacity and creativity, especially in comparison to traditional protest. You think protest, you think picketing, you think sit-in, but when you look at the movement for LGBT rights and at AIDS activism, you see things like die-ins and you see performance art and floats and parades used in a way that specifically has a message that's almost, I don't know, it's very direct. There's no sugarcoating. It's very edgy. It's very creative. And I would say that's kind of what drew me to the history of the protest movement. So the book that I'm reading is How to Survive a Plague, the story of how activists and scientists tamed AIDS by David Franz. I would say the thing that appeals to me most about the book is the fact that it was written by somebody who survived the crisis. So he basically has chapters where it's first person. Before David Franz wrote his book, he was a journalist in New York City documenting the AIDS crisis and watching as members of his community fought and protested. And many of them eventually died of AIDS. The main thing that I want to ask is basically the question that the title of the book asks, which is how to survive a plague, right? Like, how do you survive a community-wide traumatic experience like this and continue on? And I think, especially with COVID, that's the relevant thing that I wanted to touch on. In this episode, Jordan Pettiford interviews David France about the challenges of fighting a virus when the virus becomes political. My name is Gabe Hostin, and this is Untextbooked. Stay tuned. Untextbooked. Okay, well, firstly, I just want to say hi, and thank you for agreeing to do this interview. I had a really great time reading your book, and I definitely learned a lot, so I'm pretty excited for this. Hi, Jordan. I'm excited, too. When were the first real signs of the epidemic visible? Uh, I guess that's kind of a debatable question. You know, the first time it was ever described scientifically was in July of 1981, um, but many people say that they, they saw evidence of it in the years before that. And um, historians, medical historians, have looked back and seen cases, isolated cases, even in the United States as early as 1969. 
but it wasn't really clear that it was a, an epidemic or a viral infection until middle of the year in 1981. A very small group of people who were, who were first diagnosed in, in 1981 were very wealthy white gay men um, who existed and uh, traveled in very small circles of privilege. It took the rest of the community some years to start being really concerned about what this meant for uh, gay men in general. So you have this sort of spread in the community and the advent of like safe sex campaigns and activism, all of this before you get a big public mention of AIDS from the president at the time, who's Ronald Reagan. So can you talk a little bit about some of the milestones that were kind of passed before you get a mention from the White House and a direct address of the issues? Well, certainly there's a body count, um, and you can go back and see how many people were dying uh, in the country before the leader of the country had anything to say about it. But it wasn't just him. It was, you know, the, the New York Times and the epicenter of the epidemic in those days was New York City. The New York Times didn't put it on the front page for years. What has become one of the largest public health disasters in human history could have been foretold back then, but the times, um, like the president and like our political leaders, were uh, so disdainful of the queer community then that they just paid it no attention, or if they did, they felt that it didn't deserve any public mention. But when they did pay attention to it, it was um, largely to call us victims um, of a lifestyle, of a disease, of one another, um, so the first thing that activism had to do, it, it became clear, was to wage a campaign to establish the very humanity of LGBTQ people in the eyes of the public. It was a, a, it's terrible to think back that one would have to take on a, a job like that. But in, n nobody was considering the people who were contracting AIDS and dying of it to be you know, human beings who had dignity and had worth and um, whose loss was mourned by others. I mean, all of that stuff really had to be established. And the People with AIDS em empowerment movement was really remarkable to watch. And one of the things that the PWA, as they called themselves, PWA empowerment movement took on then was to stop calling people with AIDS victims or even patients. They were people with AIDS, and they, they really stressed that. And they were people surviving AIDS, not people dying of AIDS. And um, so there was a kind of a linguistic aspect to this struggle, but it really was about defining the community for the first time in an affirmative way. And that began what you see throughout the course of this history, this, the development of a really remarkable trend-setting um, patient advocacy movement that redefined the relationship between people who were battling a disease in their own lives and the doctors and researchers and uh, regulators who were busy trying to address that. And you're right to point out that while the, the movement was trying to do that then in the, those first few years of the 80s, the, the rest of kind of political winds in the country were going in the opposite direction, blaming gay men for the disease that was um, killing them, 
uh, alleging, as it was from the presidency on down, that it was gayness itself that was causing these deaths, not a, a, a virus that had jumped from animal to man. Add to it the violence that was um, that all of this political saber rattling was engendering, and the 1980s were a really, really difficult time for the gay community back then. So you talked a little bit, kind of about patient expertise finally getting a seat at the table. Could you touch specifically a little bit on ACT UP and the work that they did to get certain drugs and treatments on the market and push them through? Mm, absolutely. You know, uh, ACT UP was such a, a game changer. Uh, ACT UP formed in 1987. So that was six years into the pandemic. Um, and in those six years, there was not one drug released to treat HIV. That's how slowly the research was taking shape. Um, and that was the crisis into which ACT UP inserted itself. And ACT UP changed the tenor of AIDS activism. I was talking earlier about the PWA empowerment movement. That was about um, identifying the community's interests and, and the voice of the community. But six years in with no drugs, that voice became very angry. And that's what ACT UP formed to express was rage. You know, they, they brought a demonstration to the FDA, and just shouted at the FDA, you know, give us all the drugs. By that time, there was one drug available, and it was a highly toxic drug. It did nothing, we learned later, to extend life expectancy. Um, although for years and years and years, it was the only compound available, AZT it was called. Uh, and so they go to the FDA and they start chanting, AZT is not enough, give us all the other stuff. Like that was the chant, Boy, all the other stuff. It, it took them a while to realize there was no other stuff, that there, there was nobody trying to devise new compounds, new approaches. There was no work even on the basic science of of uh, trying to understand this retrovirus and how it acted and how you might slow it down or stop it. And then there was nobody developing a strategy or an agenda for doing this. Six years in with no drugs, that voice became very angry. And that's what ACT UP formed to express was rage. They wanted to take what was six years of fear and sadness and loss, and terror, and change it into something more expressive of the kind of this developing fury that so little was happening. Do you have like uh, something that stands in your memory, like a particular protest that really stands out to you as like this was historical to watch? Mm, that's so interesting. You know, so so many of them were. They were so inventive. You know, for example, there was the protest you you might remember from the the book at the home of Senator Jesse Helms uh, in North Carolina. It was his home outside of Washington. He was the single most ardent obstacle to funding for AIDS research in Washington. He advocated instead legislation that would strip gay people of, of rights. He considered gay people both abominations and examples of moral decay in American society. He was really, really old school, but very much in charge of the Senate. And any appropriation needed his approval. 
and he attached what became known as the Helms Amendment to every piece of legislation that even uh, hinted at supporting research in HIV-AIDS or prevention campaigns. His sway over his fellow senators was thorough. And um, an ACT UP decided that they needed to give permission to his fellow senators to, to, to see him differently. And they did that by going to his house with an enormous 35-foot-tall canvas condom. And they wrapped this condom over his house, entirely engulfing his house. And as it came down and spilled to the ground, um, uh, it revealed the message that said, Jesse Helms is deadlier than a virus. And, um, and, and it was done to, to, to ridicule the man. And ridicule gave permission to his fellow lawmakers to laugh at him. And they did laugh at him. They, 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 they laughed and laughed and laughed. And never again was he able to connect a Helms Amendment to one of the AIDS-related pieces of funding. It, it was an inspired action. It was one that wasn't seen by many people, except some local photographers that were there. But everybody on Capitol Hill knew it happened. And that was the target for this action. And it worked. So you kind of talk about the community being like its own almost like little corner of the world. But you also talk about in your book that there's so many different people that came together to sort of join the the activism in the fight. You have high school dropout, a banker, a wife who's an expert in immunology. Do you, Can you kind of talk about what you think brought all these people together? Was it the fight? Was it the grief? Or was it something else? It was mostly just knowledge that this was happening. And the people who came to ACT UP were all called to action, just as the people who had been doing activism in the six years prior had been called. The people who formed uh, Gay Men's Health Crisis, for example, in New York, and the Shanti Project in San Francisco, the people who were setting up LGBTQ community centers, which hadn't existed before, all those activists were doing all of that because it was essential that it be done. And then every once in a while, somebody wandered in through a different course. And that's how we get Dr. Iris Long, who you mentioned as a, as a housewife, with scientific background. She's a very interesting, I, I consider her kind of a deus ex machina. Like she arrives from nowhere and um, almost accidentally finding her way to act up. She was a heterosexual woman, knew nobody with AIDS, had never met a gay person before in her life that she knew of. She was a working class woman who had put herself through a PhD program uh, in uh, pharmacology and, uh, and chemical research. And her specialty was reverse transcriptase, which is exactly the mechanism that HIV was using and, um, and how to inhibit it. It's, and she couldn't find any work um, because she didn't get her PhD until she was in her late 40s and you know, she was not on anybody's radar as a, as a genius in the world of, um, of pharmacology. But she wanted to use that degree somehow, and she thought maybe ACT UP could, could use some of her knowledge. And her arrival there sparked this whole idea that you could actually learn something about science. Here was a, a middle-aged woman who had 
learn something about science. And she wanted to come and show people. And she formed a committee in ACT UP um, that everybody called Science Club at first. And, um, and she called treatment and data because she, she wanted to demystify the treatment and the data around the treatment and really led the charge into this new and radical kind of activism. Um, uh, most of which she did just because she was driven by the science itself. And I think that she doesn't, even to this day, really understand the magnitude of the impact uh, that she had just by wandering into those meetings, that at least that first time in, in early 1987, and that, that it really changed the course of AIDS. Something else that kind of struck me about your book is that parts of it sort of almost read like a war novel to me, if that makes sense, in that you have these victories that are achieved by ACT UP, and you have people uh, surviving and living their lives, but you also have this overwhelming sense of loss in a lot of parts of the book. And the thing that struck me the most was when you were talking about seeing the AIDS quilt on the National Mall. So I was wondering if you could speak a little bit as to what it was like emotionally to like know people with AIDS to go through this time period. Well, you know, you're right to say that it's, it's warlike. It was certainly a mass death experience. Um, and like in a war, um, th- that mass death took place in a very small corner of society. We, we all knew back then that if you knew one person who had died of AIDS, you knew dozens because our community was so isolated from the rest of society that when we lived in separate neighborhoods, we were segregated. And so when you started seeing your first person with HIV um, or Kaposi's sarcoma or uh, pneumocystis pneumonia, you realized that you were seeing your second and your third and your fourth. And by the time that AIDS quilt made its way to Washington, all of us had suffered such an extreme sense of loss and and fear for ourselves as well, that um, that we hadn't even begun to process um, because it was happening so quickly. You know, in, 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 a, in a war, people don't stop to grieve the losses. There's no time for it. That was the power of that quilt when it arrived in Washington in, in uh, late 1987 that it gathered that grief for the first time in a single place. It created a temple of that grief and, and invited us in to experience it and invited people who had no knowledge of the pandemic also to come and experience it. So by the time you get to the 90s, you kind of have a series of public figures who kind of have come out and said, I have AIDS. Um, And so I wondered, do you see by the time you get to the 90s, a little bit more of that goal of humanizing people with AIDS being achieved? You know, the death by AIDS shattered any closet door. So we started seeing people at the highest levels of of literature and film and ballet and art um, dying. You know, people we didn't know were gay, and and yet there they were dead from this from this gay disease, so called. Um, and that started convincing people 
that we were a community not of people lurking in bushes, but a community of people who are an essential core to our culture. Think of Rock Hudson, for example, who had been a big Hollywood leading man. We didn't learn until he died that he had AIDS and that he was gay. Um, and then some people started just declaring it kind of preemptively while alive. And one of them was Magic Johnson, the basketball star, not gay, but uh, emblematic of the move of, the, of this pandemic from the gay community into the com communities of color. Um, and his self-declaration of his infection um, was so seismic, it can't really be underestimated. And in 1996, we see it all coming together in the discovery of this medicine called a protease inhibitor, that when you combine that with two earlier approaches, suddenly, boom, we've got a treatment that works. That's 15 years now of pandemic, 15 years without an effective medication. 15 years of plague where uh, survival from a, an HIV infection was considered nearly impossible. So that at that moment, there was a great arrival, not just at the possibility of survival, but at this idea that the community, the queer community had prevailed and had done what was considered impossible. So you kind of touched on you do the impossible and you find a treatment for AIDS uh, that's somewhat accessible by the mid to late 90s. So what happens next? You have all these AIDS activists that have dedicated a decent majority of their lives to trying to solve this issue, to find a treatment. So what do all these people do after you find an effective treatment? It's interesting. You know, the, the, the people whose stories I tell in How to Survive a Plague are people who mostly were HIV positive and had left the ordinary trajectory of their lives. They had not started careers. They had not finished their studies. They had not, you know, begun to, you know, do the things that people do in adulthood. They had acquired immense debt, which they expected they would leave behind. Um, why pay the credit card if you're just going to die? And suddenly they were given this kind of unexpected news that they weren't going to die. That was disorienting to a lot of people. A lot of people, not just in the, the kind of act up universe, but a lot of people in the community, this idea that, that ongoingness was possible and, um, not only that, but like necessary, like there's very little you can do about it. Like we're, we're going to, we're going into the future together. It unexpectedly led to, uh, another pandemic in the very, very same community. And that was a pandemic of drug addiction that followed in 1996 with crystal methamphetamines. A remarkable uh, overlap of communities, the people who had fought the hardest for the ability to live and the people who fell into this, this amphetamine addiction. It was heartbreaking to watch. It didn't catch most people, but it caught a, a very, very um, substantial minority of, uh, of activists. Some of the activists then went back to school. Um, some left the U.S., recognizing that now that we have a solution, 
we have to find a way to get this solution to an HIV infection out to the rest of the world. And a nucleus from ACT UP and the spin-off organization Treatment Act, Act, Action Group, a nucleus from those two groups moved to South Africa and helped uh, local activists there create the AIDS treatment access movement that has been a key player in this current pandemic, um, all the lessons that were learned there. Uh, currently today, there are some 20 million people around the globe who are alive and living because of these antiretrovirals that are be being supplied to people for a, well under a dollar a day, these victories of the second wave of activism. And then as, as some of them have just gone on to live the ordinary life that they were hoping that they would have. And, and some of the people um, were able to keep doing the activism they're doing. And when we get there, and I think we will get to the place where we have a cure for AIDS, it will be because of the people who stayed in the trenches over all these years. So we're in a pandemic now, which I'm sure was something that you never imagined when you were writing your book. Is there any advice that you think AIDS activists could give to people in 2021 coming out of this pandemic on how you survive this sort of communal trauma? What AIDS activism really stressed was that no matter how disenfranchised you are, no matter how powerless you feel, uh, it is possible to find power and to exercise power and to, um, to use your voice individually and collectively to, to make change. That power is possible. And I think we've been feeling so disempowered in the COVID-19 pandemic. Um, we have been locked up at home for so much of the time. We haven't been able to meet with one another and experience our traumas collectively. So I think that it's going to be quite a road out of this for us all emotionally and energetically. But I think what AIDS activism teaches us is that that road is there. We have to find it and forge it. And if we can do that collectively, one day these vaccines are going to allow us to, to do collective work again. Um, I think it's going to be a long road, but I think it's going to be a really rewarding one. David France is the author of How to Survive a Plague, the inside story of how citizens and science tamed AIDS. David, where can people find more of your work? Well, um, certainly at davidfrance.com. And I think you can see not only my book work there and magazine writing over the years, but more recently my film work, including the film How to Survive a Plague, a documentary that covers some of the same territory as the book. Thank you so much for agreeing to do this interview. And I did want to let you know that I'm a huge fan of your documentaries. So, Thank you, Jordan. This was a really, really wonderful conversation. I appreciate it. David France is an investigative reporter and documentary filmmaker. He's the author of How to Survive a Plague, the inside story of how citizens and science tamed AIDS. Jordan Pettiford is a freshman at Columbia University. Our website is untextbook.org and we're on social media at Untextbook. Our music is by Silas Bowen and Coleman Hamilton. Untextbook is edited by Bethany Denton and Jeff Emman. Fernanda Rain is our executive producer. Untextbook is a project of Got History 
organization that believes in a world where all young people can advance civic well-being for themselves, society, and the planet.